The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, if you could find in your Bibles the book of Hosea. Now this is, I know sometimes when you see some of these Old Testament prophecies and the, these smaller, maybe lesser known books in the Bible, sometimes it may cause you to pause a minute and say, okay, not sure we've ever done this before, what, you know, but I want, you, I want you to be reassured and encouraged that, uh, first of all, every book in the Bible is important, okay, if it's in there, it's important, and, and the book of Hosea uh, is maybe one of the, uh, if you can even say this reverently, more important of the 12 minor prophets. It's the first of the 12 in the order. So if you were to go to Matthew, back up 12 books exactly, you'd be at Hosea. Uh, the, the beginning of the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And so I want to do a couple of things here starting off since this is the first uh, message in a series through this minor prophet. I want to tell you a quick personal story that may give you some context, but then also give you just a brief introduction of some things about this particular prophecy. So, first of all, the story. I want to tell you um, just briefly, not in detail, but my, my family. My, my, uh, and when I say my family, I mean prior to uh, marriage. My family, growing up. Uh, I had a, I, I think, from my perspective, I had a, a good childhood. I have one older sister uh, who is just uh, almost two years older than me. And uh, I, something I always remind her of, as long as we're alive, she'll be older. And so just to make sure she's okay with that. But uh, she just had a birthday, matter of fact, June 18th. So uh, my childhood was good, but I reached a point just to... I'm trying to figure out how to condense this and still give you all the relevant information. Uh, I reached a point in high school where I had some friends who had experienced their parents divorcing at a younger age, okay, so I remember uh, my perspective on that was I didn't fully understand really, I guess in elementary school and then into middle school, didn't fully understand all that meant. They split up, okay, I get it, but uh, I had kind of adopted this perspective of, okay, well, I'm, I'm already in midway through high school at this point, and so it's almost like I felt I had passed a point where, okay, now that's not going to happen to me. Because maybe like uh, there, there was a period of time maybe when you're younger and you think, okay, well, that's, it's possible. But then once you get a little older and it still hadn't happened, you think, okay, well, that's, I'm good now. That's not going to happen. But then it did happen. So my junior year in high school, my parents got a divorce. And I wonder, I don't have anything to compare that to, but I wonder if it didn't impact me more because I had kind of gotten this maybe a false sense of security. Does that make sense? I kind of thought, okay, well, I'm good. That's never going to happen to me. I'm not going to have to deal with that. And then I did have to deal with it. And so I lived through that, and maybe it gave me uh, an excuse. Maybe I used that situation as an excuse for some of my bad behavior. Uh, There was about a good six years of my life that, looking back, I wish I could kind of just kind of erase that off, you know, especially in a, in a time and culture where people are, are inclined to try to rewrite history and just say, well, something bad happened in my past. I just want to erase it like it didn't happen. So maybe I feel that way. 
You know, there's about six years there where I could have just done without, uh, from my perspective. But nevertheless, that, that's my life. I, I, I lived it, I went through it, I experienced it, and I can't change the history, but I had to live through it, and that, cha- that kind of shaped my perspective on a lot of things, and it, it shaped who I am as a person because of my experiences, right? So that, that happens to all of us. Our life experiences shape who we are. Well, I tell you that just in real general terms to relate that to this prophecy because the unique uh, characteristic of the book of Hosea is that Hosea had to live out this story in his own life before he could preach this message to God's people. It's really interesting, because, and you'll see how that works out when we start to read. Uh, Hosea had to experience these things in his own personal life and then preach this message from God to God's people. Now, the name Hosea literally means salvation. And it's really closely related to a Hebrew word, Hosanna, which means save now. And so that's, that's kind of the theme of, of what we're talking about here. Now, Hosea preached to the northern kingdom of Israel for nearly 60 years during the 8th century B.C. And uh, that's important because the kingdom was divided at this time. Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and he was preaching in the north for nearly 60 years. Okay, so then when he starts out this prophecy, he lists four kings of Judah during the time he was preaching and only one king of Israel. And you might think, well, why does that matter? Well... He's, he's kind of very subtly uh, indicating that it's the, the line of David that was ruling in Judah in the southern kingdom. That's the, the real true line of, of rulers from God, not uh, the, the line that was in Israel. So he's mentioning all these kings from Judah, but only one from Israel. And so you see the, what you see in this, in this prophecy, and, and it's really run one of the longer of the twelve minor prophets, Hosea and Zechariah are, are the two longest prophecies of these twelve. But we're going to see the backsliding of Israel, the uh, chastening of God. He uses Assyria, another uh, a non-believing country, to discipline his people. But then the future restoration of God's people. So this is really kind of a lesson for us. It's a lesson for believers who disobey the Lord and who uh, go astray and they commit spiritual adultery by following the world instead of following God. You know, we find those little verses over in 1 John, the very end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and following, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And it's a very specific message and reasoning why that's a bad thing to do. So that's what God's people were doing here. That's why they're being disciplined. And uh, I found this quote that I found very helpful. Leon Wood writes, Seldom does prosperity lead to behavior that pleases God. Think about that for a minute. Seldom does prosperity lead to behavior that pleases God. And why, why do you think that is? Oh, I got everything I need. I'm good. God, take a break. I got it. I'll call you if I need you. And so if, if we're doing well, it's tempting to feel like maybe we don't need God as much. And that's a, an unfortunate lie that, that is tempting many people. So the basic message is this. God loves his people. 
However, they sin so grievously that he has to punish them, discipline them, but he's not giving them up for good, and he's going to restore them again. There's so many different parts of this that will, I think, help us and, and instruct us just in general terms, even, even something like uh, the Ten Commandments. We see those kind of uh, air, uh, shades of the Ten Commandments even in this prophecy because what are the first two? We talk about this frequently, I feel like. The first two commandments, you'll have no other gods, you'll have no idols, right? That's one and two. They're one and two because they're the most important. And commandments three through ten hinge on those two, no other gods, no idols. And that's exactly what God's people were guilty of here. And so uh, even though it looks the, 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 the same a little bit, but it's different, uh, maybe different terms, but the, the principle is the same in our own day. Uh, it's tempting to look around the culture and find an idol, and maybe we don't realize it's an idol at the time, but it's the same sin in different terms. So we want to see in Hosea his own reconciliation with his wayward wife and how it illustrates Israel's ultimate restoration, God's people ultimately being restored to him. So I say all that to kind of just give you a general background on what, what we'll see here in this book. Today we're just going to look at the first nine verses of chapter 1, kind of give us a, a beginning point, and the, the stage will be set for what's going to happen as we move through this prophecy. So follow along with me, if you will. I'm going to read... Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 9. The words will be up on the screen for you as well. Here's what the Bible says. The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea the son of Beeri during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord or going away from following after the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion or mercy on the house of Israel that I would even uh, ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people. And I am not your God. Father, in Jesus' name I pray today you would open our hearts and minds, speak clearly to us through your word, give us understanding by your spirit, and then help us, Lord, to be obedient to 
to what you teach us. For Christ's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this, I, I know what you may be thinking. This is a really strange story already. It's a really strange beginning. I, I'm not really sure where we're going here. But I want to try to do my best to explain what's happening so we can really get all that God has for us out of this text. So first of all, you see the word of the Lord comes to Hosea and he lists those kings I was telling you about, the four kings of Judah, the one king of Israel. And then in verse 2 is when the story really gets beginning and the Lord speaks to Hosea and he basically says this in, in layman's terms. You're going to go and marry a prostitute. And so you have to imagine the surprise, maybe the reluctance. What are you talking about? Why would I do that? But that's God's message. Remember what I told you, the unique characteristic about this prophecy? Hosea has to live out in his own life the message that he's going to preach. And so we're talking about how God's people have been unfaithful to him. They're following idols. They're seeking help from the world, not from the Lord. And so because they're being unfaithful spiritually, Hosea now is commanded by God to go and marry a prostitute. And in verse 2, it kind of fleshes that out. Go marry a prostitute, a wife of harlotry. Have children of harlotry. And then you see the reason. For the land, his people, commits flagrant harlotry from following after the Lord. So they're not following after the Lord anymore. They're forsaking the Lord. And so Hosea's wife is going to be unfaithful. He knows that up front. Now, isn't that odd? Because normally, that's not how, that's really not the best foundation for going into a marriage, right? Like you first start dating, and how about this? Picture this. In, in traditional terms, I like to picture this. Uh, we were just rode by there a few weeks back. I like to picture that. Uh, you know the corner uh, in Charleston in the harbor, the corner you go around where in the battery where you see all the cannons and everything right there and the beautiful trees and that gazebo right in the middle of it. You know what I'm talking about? That, that, that corner part of right on the water. And, you know, a lot of people... That they choose that gazebo, that's where they're going to propose, or some people even that's where they have their wedding. You know, you see that type of stuff, and it's just really cool, right? But think about this. Think about uh, going to propose. You're uh, maybe a young man's going to propose to his his girlfriend, and they're in this beautiful setting. Everything's just perfect, and they they walk up to this gazebo, and then. The girl says to the guy as he drops to a knee and he's sitting there looking up with expectancy and she looks down at him and says, you know I'm going to cheat on you, right? <laughs> that, that'll kind of kill the moment, won't it? I mean, that's just not what you expect. You expect everything but that. You know I'm going to be unfaithful, right? I mean, what do you do? God has commanded Hosea, go marry a prostitute. This is going to teach a lesson to my people. You're going to live it personally. Talk about internalizing a message. Hosea is going to have all kinds of perspective when he goes to preach this message to the people because 
he's had to go through this. God told him, go do this. Go marry an unfaithful woman. Your children are going to follow their mother's example. They're going to be unfaithful. Your family's going to illustrate what the northern kingdom of Israel is doing. So it's going to be like a little object lesson. His family is going to demonstrate what he's going to have to preach about ongoing, flagrant, spiritual adultery, worshiping idols, not following after the Lord. Now, I want to try to put this in more personal terms because typically, here's how I was taught, here's the process that I try to go through whenever I'm preaching, whenever I'm preparing, I'm studying the the Bible and I'm preparing to try to teach what is in the Word. So here's what's supposed to happen Every week, I'm reading the Bible, I'm studying this passage of Scripture, I I study the whole book, and then I study the the paragraph or the section that we're going to be focusing on on a given week, and as I'm reading and praying and studying and reading other books about, about the passage, trying to learn everything I can so I can faithfully explain it. But here's what's supposed to happen in the sermon preparation process. It's called internalize. I'm supposed to internalize the message. In other words, the the scripture that I preach week to week is supposed to have uh, an effect on me personally before I can relay it to you so it might have an effect on you. Does that make sense? It it comes... one, one, um, one preacher years and years and years ago, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, uh, you take the truth of Scripture through the life of the preacher to the lives of the congregation. It's like I have to, I have to ha- if it doesn't mean anything to me, how do I expect it's going to mean anything to you, right? That, that's what it means. That's how it boils down. So much like that sermon preparation process, boy, you talk about internalizing a message. Hosea has, he's asked to go marry an unfaithful woman, to have unfaithful children, just to illustrate the kingdom of Israel and what they're doing to God. So he does that. Verse 3. He goes and finds this woman. They get married. They have a son. And you get to verse 4. Now, I want you to know each of these names are very specific and intentional. So verse 4, the Bible says, The Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. Now Jezreel means God sows. Like sowing and reaping, God sows. Okay, so he's planting. That's what it means. It also refers to the site geographically of the great sin of someone named Jehu, which we actually see in verse 4. He went beyond what God told him to do. He killed many people in this valley of Jezreel. So God is going to punish him by ending the dynasty of the kingdom of Israel. And so the literal meaning here is, uh, God says, I'm going to visit the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. So this this son is named after an event and a judgment that's coming because of it. So every name is going to have great significance in the story. And so the bow that he mentions here, he says um, in verse 5, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So he's talking about that symbolizes 
military strength. So he's, to, to have the bow broken means a loss of power. Now, Zechariah, who is the fourth descendant of Jehu to rule the northern kingdom of Israel, he was assassinated. Okay, he's talking about God's judgment. God says he's going to bring judgment because of this sin. So Zechariah was assassinated in 752 B.C., which cut off that dynasty forever. So God's judgment came in the same place where the sin was committed. There's, there's great meaning to this. It's not, nothing, none of this is random. Okay, that, that's what God said that was going to happen. That's what happened. So when he says, this is, you're going to name this child Jezreel, this is why, and this is exactly what happened. Now, you get to verse 6. There's another child with another significant name. God gives Hosea a daughter and gives her the name Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy or, or no compassion. So what God is saying by the birth of this daughter and her name I'm no longer going to show my love to the nation of Israel. Instead, he's going to literally, well, this is a paraphrase of what he literally says, he's going to violently carry her away into judgment. Now, what do we always say? This, this same phrase has come up in the last few months a, a number of times. Actions have consequences, right? Actions have consequences. And, and unfortunately, our culture today, that... that uh, principle is fading. People think that you can just do whatever you want and not be held accountable. You know, if you break the law, you're not. You know, it's it's the it's the government's fault. It's the police's fault that you're you know that you're going to jail. You're being arrested, but even though you broke the law, you know, there's no accountability. But actions have consequences, and so here, God is going to withhold His love from the nation of Israel and carry her away violently into judgment. But why? Is it just random? No. It's very intentional because of some sin, some serious sinfulness. So if Israel is going to turn their back on God, now I want you to try to internalize this, right? That's the kind of a theme here, internalize the message. Israel, God's people, turn their back on God, worship idols, when they need help, they seek help from neighboring pagan countries. They don't seek the Lord. And so that's everything is opposite of what they're supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to be living. And so God is going to punish them, discipline them. Now, I want to ask this question. What is the purpose of discipline? Is it simply to be mean? Is it just because... Um, I enjoy punishing someone else. Is that the purpose of discipline? I hope not. What's the true intent of discipline? If you have to discipline a child, what does that mean? They've disobeyed, right? So you've given them a direction. They've either ignored it or just not done it. And so there's consequences, right? So there's punishment, so you're going to discipline the child, but what's the purpose? Right? It's not just, I said this, you didn't do it, or you did something wrong, so I'm going to punish you. What's the, what's the real purpose? Hey, you're supposed to be going this way. You, you went 
this way, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct you. I'm going to pull you back onto the right path, and sometimes that hurts, right? Sometimes the discipline is painful because the punishment is not pleasant, but there's meaning behind it. It's not just random. This is why every Christian um, authority, if you will, on uh, family and child uh, development and those things from a Christian biblical perspective will counsel parents, do your best not to discipline your children when you're angry because then a message comes across that may not be uh, exactly what you intend. Because what's the purpose of discipline? Is it to be mad? Is it to just inflict pain? Well, no. In our human side, is that how we feel sometimes? Yeah, maybe so. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is to... Here, here's the ideal situation. The purpose is to correct, retrain, to re-engage on a correct pathway, and, and do so with love. What, what did my father used to say to me that I never believed? This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I said, well, clearly you don't know how bad it hurts me. Because if you think it hurts you worse, then you are mistaken, sir. Uh, but that wasn't the case. He wasn't talking about physical pain, was he? He was talking about emotional pain. Spiritual pain. Now, until we had children... I really didn't fully grasp what that meant. But I know now because it, it, it's painful because what do you want to do? You want to just take care of it. You want to save your kids from pain. You want to prevent the pain, prevent the hardship. Sometimes they have to go through it to learn because sometimes if you don't associate the pain with the error then you don't learn the lesson. You don't know well enough, okay, that's what happened last time I did this. I don't want to do that again. But here's the real purpose behind it. I want to learn the principle. What is the ultimate truth behind God's discipline? Okay, take the, the analogy of a parent and a child. What's the ultimate truth behind God's discipline? I want you to know the purpose of not just this is the way I want you to go, I want you to know why I want you to go that way. I want you to know why. It's because I love you. It's because I want what's best for you. It's because this way is best for you and it brings you joy and it brings me glory. This is God from God's perspective. So that's why I bring the discipline and the judgment so that you will learn that you, you exist as God's people to bring glory to the name of Jesus. And so if you learn the lesson, this is a way that is going to bring you the best joy and bring me the most glory. It's a win-win. And when you, when you divert from that, it does just the opposite. It brings us pain and brings God dishonor. And that's, that's wrong on every count. So see, God's judgment is never arbitrary. It's always intentional. It's always purposeful. So God gives Hosea this daughter. He says, I'll no longer show love to the nation of Israel. I will carry her away to judgment. But I want you to see that God 
the way God relates to the southern kingdom. He's talking about Israel going into judgment, but then he says, but, verse 7, I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God. Now, what's the real meaning here? Judah has followed. They haven't diverted off the path. So that's why they're going to be delivered. And look how he says he's going to deliver. This is very important. At the end of verse 7, he says, I'm going to deliver them by the Lord their God, not by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. So what did we say the bow stood for earlier? Military strength. And so to break the bow of Israel was to do away with their military strength. So he says intentionally here, Judah's going to be delivered, but not because of the stuff they can do. Not because of their army. Not because of their military strength. They're going to be delivered by the Lord their God. Because they're going to seek help from the Lord their God. They're going to trust in the Lord, and the Lord is going to deliver them. Not by their strength. Don't you remember? We're going to get to this later if we, when we go through the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, I believe it's chapter 4 and verse 7. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's, it's God's power. So he's, he's, it's almost like he's begging his people, don't you remember anything I've done over the last couple thousand years? Because it's, you know, it's been pretty significant. I've delivered you from a lot of stuff. You know, don't you remember bondage in Egypt? Don't you remember the ten plagues I sent? Don't you remember the deliverance, the blood of the Lamb, the Passover, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, the, the Promised Land? Don't you remember any of that? It's almost, it's, it's almost like every generation of God's people suffers from that same old problem, a short memory. God has done so much for His people. And so he's trying to discipline them and remember, help them remember what he's done and, and how a contrast between Israel and Judah. I will deliver them myself. Israel has forsaken me, so they're going to go into judgment. Judah has followed, so they're going to be delivered. The last part here, the last two verses, the third child. We have a, a son named Jezreel, a daughter named Lo-Ruhamah, so that means... God sows, and then no mercy, no compassion. Then the final section here, the final child, uh, verse 8, when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people. That's literally what the name means. Lo-Ami means not my people. Now, it's an important distinction. Is, is, is this saying that they will never be God's people? No. It's saying, right now, you're not my people. You're not acting like my people. You're not doing the things my people are supposed to be doing. And so right now, it's almost, let, me, let me put it in, in terms that we can understand today. If, if we're not willing to live the Christian life then we should stop calling ourselves Christians. Now that, that might hurt a little bit, right? Hurts my feelings, the implications of that. So if I'm not willing to do what God says, live the way God says to live, 
If I'm not willing to do those things, the responsibilities that come along with that title, if I'm not willing to do that, then maybe I should stop using the title. You know, because that's not something to just flippantly throw around. Are you a Christian? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay, what's that mean? Does that mean I go to church once or twice a month? Does that mean um, I don't cheat on my taxes much? Does that mean, what, what does that mean exactly to say I'm a Christian? You know, more and more in our day and time, it appears we need to define our terms when we have conversation. Because one person may use a word that I use, and we might mean a couple of different things by the same word, right? So, so in, in our terms, that's what is happening here, this not my people. If I'm going to use the title Christian, if I'm going to say I follow Jesus, then that means I need to, uh, in, in gambler's terms, I need to put up or shut up. I need to live it out, right? If I'm not willing to live it out, maybe I should stop calling myself a Christian. So God says, you're going to name this son not my people. Literally, listen to the emphatic nature of this. Literally, it says, God says, I am not, I am to you. Because that, that was God's covenant, Old Testament I am. He told Moses, tell them, I am has sent you, right? So God says, I am not I am to you. As long as you're going to act a fool like this and disobey and, and forsake me, no. That, that's not who I am to you. D.A. Carson writes, It is still, of course, open to individuals to be faithful to the Lord and find acceptance, as many foreigners did throughout Israel's history, including Ruth and Rahab, and the way back to God is still open, as we'll see later in this prophecy. And Leon Wood comments on the name here, not my people. He says, Lo-Ami is harsher in meaning than the name of the second child. Because the name Lo-Ruhamah spoke of not being loved. Lo-Ami speaks of being fully disowned. That's how serious this judgment is and how serious the sin is. That's one thing we can't separate. It's not just judgment for the sake of judgment. It's judgment because of the seriousness of the sin of the people. There was a, a, a senior adult lady in a, a church that I pastored up in the upstate. And we would have a, 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 a exclusively senior adult Bible study uh, on Wednesday mornings. And we were discussing this passage one day. And uh, her name is Miss Jenny Williams. She's so so sweet, and so, but so soft-spoken. And you know, you, you almost didn't uh, like you didn't you, you wondered what she was going to say. Whenever whenever she said something, it was always important. And we were talking about this passage one morning, and she said, "God has just so much patience, and then He doesn't." And and I thought about that. When we're talking about God telling His people, as long as you're living like this, I'm disowning you. It's like the ultimate church discipline when God says, right, if you're going to act like that, you can't be my people. Okay? I want you to be my people, 
But that means something. Okay? It means something. And as long as you're going to act like that, I'm not going to call you my people. So you have a man and an unfaithful wife and three children with very particular names. You remember the story I told you about my parents when we started off? And I'm sure maybe some of you can identify with that story. Maybe you grew up in a home where something like that happened or maybe something like that's happened to you. But I want to tell you something you should already be aware of. I'm, I'm sure you are. This world we live in is broken. It's, it's broken. We are covered up with this disease of sin. There's nothing we can do to escape it. It affects every area of our lives, no matter how hard we try. We can't get away from it. And one of the areas where we see that most is in family relationships. You know? If you just think about husbands, wives, children, and how we're not, by and large, we're not living up to the ideals of Scripture in those areas. Husbands aren't doing what they're supposed to do in many ways. Wives aren't doing what they're supposed to do in many ways. Children aren't doing what they're supposed to do in many ways. That, that, we, could, we could talk a lot about that. Cause, you know, I, I like to talk about how the... I'm sorry. I like to, all my three children are in, within earshot of me right now, so we can talk about the children, uh, how they're not being obedient. They're not being the obedient blessings that God meant them to be. Uh, but they don't want to hear about that. But that's the truth, okay? That, in family relationships, that's, that's the truth. That's where we see a clear picture of sin's presence in the world. Men aren't being godly husbands and fathers. Women aren't being godly wives and mothers. Children aren't being godly children. It, it, and it's not because they set out to do something bad. It's not intentional. It's just the result of sin in the world. We are in a sinful world and we are sinful people and so that's the power of sin manifested in our most precious relationships and so that's what our enemy the devil wants to happen but the, the good news is this and we're going to see this as worked out in this prophecy as we go through it the devil doesn't get his way okay you know how I know that uh, I know it's easy to say and I know you look around and you think, well, it kind of looks like he's doing a pretty good job right now. Well, I know that the devil doesn't get his way. Because 2,000 years ago, I know uh, a man named Jesus who walked outside of Jerusalem up a hill and took care of that on a cross. And so we know that the devil is not going to get his way, ultimately. So our responsibility now is to lean into that and be sure we follow the one who's victorious and not give in to the one who's not. Because the, the devil loses regardless of how he may continually just get at us. He loses. And so we need to follow the winner, not the loser. And, and thankfully... You know, when Jesus said in John 19, verse 30, it is finished. He didn't stutter. He said exactly what he meant. It is finished. He completed that work. And so we can read in you know, like Galatians 1 and John 3 and all kind of other places, salvation is dependent on God and not us. 
And his word reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13 that even when we're faithless, he is faithful because he can't deny himself. That's the story we're going to see unfold as we go through this prophecy. And, and it's probably summed up in, in this familiar phrase. God is good all the time. Let's go. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 